This morning we are continuing our series through the book of Zephaniah. So I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Zephaniah chapter 2. If you're using the blue pew Bible and seat back in front of you, you can find that on page 789, four books to the left of Matthew, sandwiched between Habakkuk and Haggai. If you're visiting, you've not been uh, with us through uh, this short series, um, here's basically what you need to know so far. Uh, Zephaniah began prophesying during the reign of Josiah, king of Judah, around 622 B.C. That's you know, about 600 years before Christ. It's important to know that in 722, so 100 years before this prophecy, uh, the nation of Assyria invaded the ten northern tribes of um, Israel, carried them off, destroyed them in exile. And then in 586, so 40 years after this prophecy, Babylon invaded Judah, the two southern tribes, destroying Jerusalem, its temple, carrying off most of the people into exile. And it's this destruction of the city of Jerusalem, uh, which this book has its, uh, is primarily focused upon. And what we're going to see today, though, um, is that there are, there are other um, sort of larger eschatological fulfillments of this, this prophecy, not just the destruction of Jerusalem in 586. What we've seen is that Zephaniah has been prophesying against Judah. God's judgment was coming upon them for their idolatry, their hypocrisy, and because they were allowing themselves to be led away by the pagan practices of the pagan nations around them. They had forsaken the Lord and His covenant with them. And so God's fury was going to be poured out upon Judah, and He was going to bring all of the covenant curses uh, that we, we mentioned last week, found in Deuteronomy 28. We'll look at some of those extensively this morning. He's going to bring all of those covenant curses down upon their heads. Our passage this morning, though, uh, we see a shift. God focuses not on Judah, but on the nations surrounding Judah as the object of His wrath. And we see glimpses of hope for Judah. We see that their destruction, their demise, wouldn't be permanent. So let's look together at Zephaniah 2, 4-15 in a sermon I've entitled Deserted and Desolate, and our key words for our worshipers and training are destroy, plunder, and desolate. Uh, one of the world's classics is the book Gulliver's Travels, a satirical romance written by Jonathan Swift in 1726, and it's a, a fanciful and fabulous account of a trip on which the author took to four imaginary countries which differed in really every way possible, even in the size of the citizens. Some were very small, some were very large. They were tiny people, they were giants. And despite all the differences of material and social conditions in these nations, the inhabitants of all four countries were alike in their vices and their follies. And so this morning, as we consider God's judgment against the pagan nations that surrounded Judah, we're going to see, like Gulliver found in his travels, that though there are many nations under heaven, we all have the same basic problems. And we can say this morning, even more specifically, we have the same basic problem. We are in rebellion against God. And so as we examine this passage this morning, verses 4-15 to of chapter 2, 
I want to do so under three headings. First, we see that God promises to judge the pagan nations around Judah. God promises to judge the pagan nations around Judah. And second, we see that God will ultimately have mercy on His people. So in the midst of judgment, God will still be merciful to His own people. And third, we see that pride is a terrible offense against God. So we're going to look at God's judgment against the nations, His judgment against Judah, and sort of undergirding all of that, the offense that pride is to the Lord. First then, let's consider God's judgment against the nations. And there are two things that we'll see in verses 4 to 6 here. Um, First, I want to note these verses and their connection with the previous passes, what we covered last week, and then secondly, secondly, we'll consider uh, who exactly it is that's being judged. So, uh, in verses 4 to 6, we read this, For Gaza shall be deserted, and Ashkelon shall become a desolation. Ashdod's people shall be driven out at noon, and Ekron shall be uprooted. Woe to you, inhabitants of the seacoast, you nation of the Cherethites! The word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, land of the Philistines, and I will destroy you until no inhabitant is left. And you, O seacoast, shall be pastures with meadows for shepherds and folds for flocks. So notice first the connection with the previous verses. Verse 4 begins with the word for. And anytime you're, you're reading something, especially in Scripture, it's always best to ask when you come across that little word for, what's the for? Therefore, it connects the following verses with what precede. It provides the logical ground upon which the previous assertion stands We noted last week in verses 1-3 to that the Lord, through Zephaniah, was urging uh, those to whom He was speaking, namely Judah, He was urging them to repent, to turn back from their sin, to turn to the Lord. They were to seek the Lord. They were to seek righteousness. They were to seek humility. And they were to do this, that they may be hidden from the Lord's anger. And then he gives us sort of the ground of that. We see a a glimpse of the full wrath of God against the nations. This glimpse is given to Judah so that they might repent. This language in uh, in these verses is, is terrifying. It speaks of utter destruction. It says the nations will be deserted. They will be left desolate, driven out, and uprooted. It says done. This is done at you know high noon. This is. You know, in the middle of of the day, it's coming quickly, even when they're at their full strength, they are going to be helpless. They will experience utter ruin. And so in telling Judah this, it's really an act of mercy. God is showing the destiny of the surrounding nations to them. It shows them where their unrepentance will lead if they remain in rebellion against God. And so it's an, incent- it's an incentive for them to choose a different fate than that which is given to the nations. Well, under this first point then, who is it that is going to be judged? Against whom is God making these pronouncements? In verse 4, He calls out Gaza, Ashkelon, Ash- Ashdod, and Ekron. 
In verse 5, he proclaims woe against the seacoast, the nation of the Cherethites. And specifically, he says the Philistines. That's who he's talking about. These, these are peoples of the Philistines. And the Philistines, uh, if you don't remember, are you know, some of the more well-known enemies of Israel. They arrayed themselves against Israel primarily when uh, Israel was seeking to establish its own monarchy during the days of Solomon and David, or sorry, Samuel and David. Now we should note that in the rest of this passage, God doesn't end His judgment with the Philistines alone. We see in verse 8 that He's going to judge Moab and Ammon, the Ammonites. In verse 12, He's going to judge Cush. Verse 13, Assyria. We'll come back to these other nations later. But it's worth mentioning from the outset that God is uh, prophesying judgment against all the nations that surrounded Judah. The Philistines were to the west, Moab, and um, the Ammonites to the east, Cush to the south, and Assyria to the north. In every direction, God's judgment is proclaimed against the pagan nations surrounding Judah. This is very, very serious language. It's a prophetic threat from God Almighty. Nothing worse can be imagined. He says in verse 5, the word of Yahweh is against the Philistines. He will bring them to complete devastation. He says no inhabitant will be left in their midst. He says in verse 6, to the seacoast that their pastures will be meadows for shepherds and folds for flocks. The commercial life for these people will be turned into open pasture lands, which are not to be possessed by them, but by another people, namely the remnant of Judah. We see in verse 7, as we'll look at in a minute, that Judah shall possess the seacoast, and there they shall graze, which leads us to our second main heading under our consideration this morning, and that's God will restore the fortunes of His people. He's going to have mercy on Judah. In verses 7 and 9, we see the reversal of the bad fortunes of God's people. God will ultimately have mercy on them. The entirety of chapter 1 is really nothing but a long decree against Judah. At times, all of mankind is mentioned, but largely it's this assault against Judah for their rebellion against God. But now in chapter 2, we are beginning to see glimmers of hope sprinkled in the midst of judgment. As I've mentioned, the sun comes out in full array at the end of chapter 3, but it's breaking through the clouds now. Judgment, we see, is not utter annihilation for Judah. He says he's going to judge his people, but he won't bring them to utter desolation. We read in verses 7 to 9 The seacoast shall become the possession of the remnant of the house of Judah, on which they shall graze, and in the houses of Ashkelon they shall lie down at evening. For the Lord their God will be mindful of them and restore their fortunes. I have heard the taunts of Moab and the revilings of the Ammonites, how they have taunted my people and made boast against their territory. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Moab shall become like Sodom and the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a land possessed by nettles and salt pits, a waste forever. The remnant of my people shall plunder them and the survivors of my nation shall possess them. 
we mentioned earlier, we, we see in these verses that God's judgment isn't just aimed at the Philistines, but now also at Moab and the Ammonites. We're told in verse 7 that the remnant of the house of Judah shall possess the seacoast of the Philistines, and they shall graze upon it with their flocks. Judah shall lie down in the house of Ashkelon at night. They shall be totally at peace and unafraid. In verses 8-9, to we see that, that Judah shall plunder and possess Moab and the Ammonites. And the destruction of these nations will be total and complete. We're given a picture of this. He says they'll be like Sodom and Gomorrah. Which if you're not familiar with the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, here's the short version. Did not go well for them. If you want more details, take a look at Genesis 19. God rains fire and sulfur out of heaven and completely destroys both cities. This is the end. This is like the end for which these nations are headed. And so how do we make sense of all of this? I I thought we've been saying that God is going to punish Judah. Now it sounds like He's going to bless them. Well, God does bring justice and judgment against His people. But they are exactly that. His people. And He's not willing to cast them off forever. In Deuteronomy 28, we find a list of covenant blessings and curses. And and so I'm going to, I'm going to read uh, several of those over the next few minutes. And so if, if you're following along in your Bibles, it, it might be helpful for you to, to turn there to Deuteronomy 28. The, the covenant blessings told here are what, uh, are what Israel could have expected, should have expected from God were they to faithfully obey His voice and do all His commandments. The result for their obedience to the Mosaic Covenant in temporal terms, in short, would be this. He says, I will set you high above all nations of the earth. God was going to bless them in the land. We read in uh, 28, verse 7, The Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before you. They shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. If Israel would have been faithful to keep God's commands the commands that He gave them, they would live long in the land and He would drive out the pagan nations before them. But if they were faithless, they would be judged. Over and over again, God sets before His people two choices, life and death. So let's take a further look at the nature of the curses that would come upon them for disobedience. In verse 25, we read this, "...the Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies." You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them. You shall be a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth and your dead body shall be food for all birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth and there shall be none to frighten them away. Down in verse 32 we read, Your sons and daughters shall be given to another people while your eyes look on and fail with longing for them all day long, you shall be, but you shall be helpless. A nation that you do not know shall eat up the fruit of your ground and all your labors. And you shall not only be oppressed and crushed continually, so that you are driven mad by the sights that your eyes see. Again in verse 36, the Lord will bring you and your kingdom you set over you 
to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known. And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, and you shall become a horror, a proverb, and byword among all the peoples where the Lord will lead you away. In the rest of the chapter, he goes on in, in more vivid detail describing the destruction that would come upon his people were they to fail to keep his commands. The Lord threatens Israel that they will be conquered by surrounding nations were they to fail to keep covenant with God. Now here's the question. What's up with this? Why in Zephaniah 1 does it sound like the curses of the covenant are coming upon Judah, but then in Zephaniah 2, it sounds like the blessings of the covenant are coming upon Judah, and the curses are coming upon their enemies. Well, if we flip over to Deuteronomy 30, I think it will become clearer. Verses 1-10 through 10 give a very important commentary on the outcome of these, of these things that are prophesied for and against Judah in uh, the Deuteronomy 28 and 29. I'll just read a few verses, the first couple of verses there. He says in verse 1 of Deuteronomy 30, when, when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey His voice and all that I command you with all your heart and with all your soul. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and He will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. So what does this look like? When does this reversal take place? Has He already done this? Or is there some future event for which we're all still waiting? Admittedly, there's plenty of debate about this, but here's what I think is the best explanation. Paul tells us that the promises of the covenant run primarily not to Abraham's physical seed, that is, the physical nation of Israel, but to his spiritual seed, that is, Christ and all who put their trust in Him. Paul writes in Galatians 3.15, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. And so the point is this. As the temporal blessings and curses of the covenant, which regulated physical Israel's enjoyment of the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant in the land of Canaan, Israel was responsible to obey and experience the blessing or disobey and suffer the curse. But as to the eternal blessings and curses, the promise was to Christ. You see, in Deuteronomy 30, there is a day foreseen where after the physical blessings and curses of the covenant come upon Israel because of their obedience or their disobedience, they would turn back to God and receive the ultimate blessings promised to Christ in the covenant. Why do I say this? Well, has the nation of Israel ever turned back to God? And now that the Messiah has come, now that Christ has come, what is the only way for someone, Jew or Gentile, to turn back to God? It's through faith in Christ. So it's through faith in Christ that the spiritual seed of Abraham received the blessings of the covenant. And so looking back into Zephaniah, this is the very thing we see in our text. God promises to His remnant that they will possess these nations. Now some may say, 
Doesn't Moses say in Deuteronomy 30, verse 5, that God will bring them back into the land? And doesn't God in Zephaniah promise Judah-specific nations to possess? These nations that we read about here? Aren't we just spiritualizing things to say that we receive the blessings of the covenant in Christ? No, I wouldn't say that. What does Jesus say in Matthew 5 about the order of His kingdom? He says in verse 5 that the meek shall inherit the earth. The whole earth. Moses says that God's people will be brought back into the land and will be more prosperous and numerous than their fathers. And so I'd say that inheriting the whole earth is better than a single strip of land in the Middle East. Wouldn't you? I know there's much debate about these things, but I think it's important that we see the full and final culmination of the promises of God as belonging to all the people of God. We see that all of God's promises find their yes and their amen in Jesus Christ. So believer, do you know that one day you will inherit the earth? The whole earth. One day, the entire world will be our possession. God is not a small, local deity vying for territory in some turf war with all the other gods of the earth. He is the one who created heaven and earth. He is redeeming His creation and readying His people to rule over it with Him in eternity forever. And so we see that God even in the midst of judgment, will be gracious to His people. We see third and finally that humility is the answer. Pride is the problem. Pride is an unbelievable offense to God. The beginning of chapter 2, we're told to seek humility. And in verses 10-15 to of chapter 2, we see that the pride of the nations is what leads to their judgment. We read in verse 10, This shall be their lot, that is the coming judgment against them, shall be their lot in return for their pride, because they taunted and boasted against the people of the Lord of hosts. The Lord will be awesome against them, for He will famish all the gods of the earth, and to Him shall bow down, each in its place, all the lands of the nations." You also, O Cushites, shall be slain by the sword. And he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria. And he will make Nineveh a desolation, a dry waste like a desert. Herds shall lie down in her midst. All kinds of beasts, even the owl and the hedgehog, shall lodge in her capitals. A voice shall hoot in the window. Devastation will be on the threshold, for her cedar work will be laid bare. This is the exultant city that lives securely, that said in her heart, I am and there is no one else. What a desolation she has become, a lair for wild beasts. Everyone who passes by her hisses and shakes his fist. And so in in these verses here, we see yet another shift in the object of God's judgment. We've moved from the west to the east, and now we see the south with Cush and the north with Assyria. He says that Cush and Assyria will be left in desolation, 
We're given another picture here of complete overthrow. No people living in the cities, but wild animals. They, like Moab and Ammon, will be judged for their pride and their antagonism toward God's people. This is explicitly stated in verse 10. Zephaniah says that these things are coming against the nations in return for their pride. They proudly set up idols to worship instead of the true and living God. And the Lord says He's going to famish these so-called gods. They and all the nations shall bow down to Him in the end. We saw last week, even our most prized possessions of silver and gold cannot save us on the great and awesome day of the Lord. The idols of the earth are no match for the sovereign King. In verse 15, we see a a picture of pride. We see the most fortified city living securely. The proud city, likely a reference to Nineveh here, but analogous to, to all cities and all of our hearts. Because we see that it will be laid low at the coming anger of the Lord. God is bringing a full and swift destruction against the nations of the world. And so we need to ask ourselves, are we ready? There is a day coming for each of us when judgment will arrive. It may not be today or tomorrow, but it is coming. And so each of us in this room needs to consider whether we are ready for that day. And we need to do it right now. Ask yourself, am I like this exultant city that lived so securely Are you sitting in your chair right now, this morning, thinking, I am, and there is no one else? If so, you are in grave danger, my friend. And I urge you to repent of your pride and put your trust in Jesus Christ. Would you cling to the Savior who became a curse for you? We quoted Galatians 3 earlier in in Galatians 3, 10-13, we read that, that we're under a curse for failing to keep the law. But Christ became a curse for us. How is it that God can restore the fortunes of His people? It's because Christ bore the full vent of His wrath for covenant breakers. All the curses of the broken covenant fell upon Christ on the cross. All of this so that through faith in Him, you and I might receive all the blessings offered in the promises of God. So if you're not in Christ this morning, I urge you to look by faith to the only Savior of men and live. However, I imagine that, that most, if any of us in here, rarely, consciously think, I am and there is no one else. But isn't that what we say in our hearts each and every time we sin? Every time you erupt in anger at your spouse or your children, aren't you saying, I am, and there is no one else? Every time you grumble against a coworker or your boss, aren't you saying, I am, and there is no one else? Every time you look at pornography, aren't you saying, I am, and there is no one else? On and on we could go. This is the heart of sin. 
I am, and there is no one else. Every time we sin, we are in effect living as though we are the law. We are the king, the queen. We are the one to whom all must answer. This is what we see to state it again in Gulliver's Travels, right? Though each country is different in every way you can imagine, everybody has the same basic problem. We all live for our wants, our needs, and our desires. We set ourselves up as kings and queens, and we demand that everyone around us live for our pleasure, our power, and our purpose. We take the name of God for ourselves. We think... I am. But what's the problem? The problem is that there is only one I am, and he isn't you or me. We could quote a number of verses here to this end, but one will suffice in Isaiah 45, 22. God says, I am God and there is no other. There is no one like God. And yet, ever since the Garden of Eden, we have been setting ourselves up as kings and queens. We are royalty in our eyes. But we need to see here where that thinking leads. The proud and sure city becomes a desolation, as does the proud and sure man or woman. Here's the deal. God is king. You and I are not. It is to Him that we must answer. We read in Zephaniah 2.11 that the kings, uh, the, sorry, the gods of earth, all nations will bow down and serve the Lord. We see in Philippians 2.10-11 this very thing that, that to Christ every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance. In humble adoration or in awful humiliation, one or the other, every single knee will bow to Jesus Christ. Those who bow willingly will inherit the earth with their king. And those who are are forced to their knees at the edge of the sword will be like a lair for wild beasts in utter mockery, a desolation. And so let's heed the sobering words of this passage and put our faith in Christ, trusting in Him alone to fully satisfy divine wrath on our behalf. As we've said, the book of Zephaniah comes with a lot of, of judgment, very hard language. But we're beginning to hear notes of peace as we progress through the book. Even in the midst of our bitter failures to love God as we should. And though the notes may be but a whisper at this point, they shall rise in a crescendo by the end of chapter 3 that ought to overwhelm our hearts like a flood. So let me close by reading the words of a song that um, I think helpfully capture what we we hear here. What we hear in these verses and what we'll see uh, in full light in just a couple weeks. Uh, It's from Horatio Bonar's song, I Hear the Words of Love. I hear the words of love. I gaze upon the blood. I see the mighty sacrifice and I have peace with God. Tis everlasting peace, sure as Jehovah's name. Tis stable as His steadfast throne, forevermore the same. The clouds may come and go, and storms may sweep my sky. This blood-sealed friendship changes not, 
the cross is ever nigh. My love is oft times low, my joy still ebbs and flows, but peace with Him remains the same. No change, Jehovah knows. I change, He changes not. The Christ can never die. His love, not mine, the resting place. His truth, not mine, the tie.